Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Uh, thank you guys for letting me um, be here again. I did not know when uh, Michael and I talked about preaching on this text that uh, we would have another name, another death, another needless death, another video haunting us, um, forcing us to reckon with the violence that we have tolerated for too long. And... Um, so it's with a, a heavy heart that I preach today, and also it feels like maybe the Spirit was planning something all along, providing for us in advance that we would be wrestling with questions like we'll wrestle with today. What does it mean to follow Jesus in an age of fear? In the 20th century, one of the most influential psychologists in the world a guy by the name of Paul Ekman identified six basic emotions. He said they were anger, disgust, happiness, sadness, surprise, and fear. But it was the last one, it was fear that turned out to be the most basic. So primitive, in fact, that even lower life forms, even lizards, feel fear. But even though fear is an emotion that we all fear, it has a kind of shame that is attached to it, which is why we camouflage our fears, dismiss our fears, deny our fears, downplay our fears, hide them from public view. I know a little something about these tactics because I spent the first three decades of my life living in the grip of fear and successfully hiding it from everyone I knew. By American standards, my 20s had been a roaring success. I graduated from college. I earned two graduate degrees. I bought my first home. My career was taking off. I'd published a couple of books. I'd even managed to save enough money to take that holy grail dream vacation. On the outside, things seem to be proceeding perfectly according to plan. But underneath, underneath that carefully constructed shell that I'd created was a frightened little boy 
Now, if you'd have hooked me up to a lie detector test back then, well, then I would have had no choice but to tell you I was gay. I knew this. I knew it to be true since at least middle school, though I'd never had the courage to use that word, not even in private. I, I treated being gay like it was highly classified intel, as if lives depended upon me keeping it a secret, and well, maybe at least one life did, mine. I grew up in the early 1980s. Uh, how many of you are children of the 80s, some of you? Uh, I grew up in the early 1980s, which means I came of age in the era of Teddy Ruxpin and Rubik's Cubes, Walkmans and Mixtapes, Reading Rainbow and Rainbow Bright. But being born in the 80s also meant that I came of age during the height of the AIDS epidemic. So as a child, I was inundated with terrible stories, nightmarish stories about what happened to people like me. News outlets were smattered with video clips of emaciated men in hospital beds languishing from a disease we all believed was a death sentence. And images of homeless men on the streets of New York City were slumped over next to heroin needles. These stories served as a kind of warning about what my future might look like if I ever embraced this part of myself. But in addition to all of these cultural narratives that I was consuming, I was also inculcated with horrible stories from my faith community. I grew up in a conservative Christian household in the Deep South. I'm the middle son of a Southern Baptist preacher and televangelist who has a Bible verse memorized for every issue and occasion. I grew up in a world where there was very little ambiguity about what God thought about being gay. Abomination was the most electric word I remember being used to describe people like me. And while I didn't fully understand what that word meant, at the time, I knew it was an awful thing to be. I also knew what God did with abominations. He sent them to hell, of course. That's what I was told. And then there were all the stories that arose from within. The doomsday scenarios that I had rehearsed more times than I can recall. I'd imagined what it would be like if I were found out having my family disown me, having my friends reject me, being cast out of my church, totally alone. And what would I do for work if that happened? My professional life had become so enmeshed in the conservative Christian world, it seemed all but certain I'd lose my livelihood. So by the time I reached my late 20s, I had let my secret slip to a handful of people, but I wasn't sure if I could trust them to keep a confidence. People talk, after all. What if one of them spilled the beans to the wrong person and I was pushed out of the closet? Well, if that happened, I had convinced myself it would mean total annihilation, a kind of death. And so I continued to live under the tyranny of terror, hamstrung by fear. What are you afraid of? What wakes you up at 4.30 in the morning and forces you to walk your dog? 
What do those voices in the night whisper to you when nobody else is listening? I mean, if you were to make a list of your most worrisome worries, what would you scribble at the top? Maybe you're on the younger side of life and you're afraid you won't pick the right major or find the right job. You're afraid that you're going to end up like that uncle of yours, you know, the uncle that everybody whispers about at Christmas. The one who everybody says had all the potential in the world but never amounted to anything. Or or maybe you're a little older and you're afraid your marriage won't survive all of the strain and stress that it's under and that you'll end up alone again. Or maybe you're afraid that if you try to conceive a child, well, maybe it will end up in another devastating miscarriage and you're not so sure you can handle that. Maybe you're caring for an aging parent, someone you are not quite ready to let go of, and maybe you are afraid of that phone call that will force you to say goodbye for good. Or maybe you are the aging parent. You've had more years behind you than in front of you for quite some time, and all you can think about is whether this year will be the year. You're afraid of what might take you out, how long it might take to take you out, and what it will be like when you exhale that last breath. Or maybe you don't live in the shadow of a great big fear. I think that's probably a lot of us. Maybe you live under a cloud of fears, a cluster of fears, a thousand little ordinary fears. You know, research has shown that most of us plan our lives around a number of these everyday fears. We make decisions not based on what lights us up or gives us joy, but because we fear missing out on money or fear missing out on a connection. We fear failure or success. We fear being disliked or rejected or judged by others. Why do people like us keep finding ourselves held back by fear or held captive to it when all we want to do is live free? And what role, if any, can faith play in helping us reorient our relationship to fear so that we're not captive to it or controlled by it? These are the kind of visceral, complex questions that are simmering at the heart of a story by a gospeler named Luke in the eighth chapter of his book about a fateful boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. It's one of the most well-known stories in the entire New Testament. The Dutch master Rembrandt famously painted it, and we know it must have something important to say to us because, well, three out of four of the gospel writers, all except John, decided that they would include it in their stories. Each one puts their own unique spin on the story, but the basic contours are the same. It's a story about faith. It's a story about fear. It's a story about how the two exist in tension. Luke 8, 22 through 25 says this, one day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. 
And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And as he awoke, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Now, if I asked any of you to identify where fear shows up in this story, well, I bet you'd point your finger straight at the storm. That's the part that stands out to most of us. But if we look a little deeper we notice that fear is bubbling up before the first rain cloud even begins to form. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus and his disciples have been touring the Judean countryside, roaming from one town and village to another. Jesus is performing miracles among the masses, masses which are growing by the day. The crowds have gotten so deep and dense that even Jesus' own mother and brothers can't manage to elbow their way to the front of the line. Finally, Jesus and his disciples reach the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there pinned in, Jesus decides he wants to charter a boat and cross over to the eastern shore. Now, most of us, when we read this, we assume it's just a minor geographical note, something to help us readers keep our bearings, but... If you were a religious Jew living in first century Palestine, like Jesus' disciples were, the thought of crossing to the eastern shore of Galilee, that would send chills up your spine. You see, in 63 BC, Roman General Pompey decided to incorporate 10 cities across the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire into a league called the Decapolis. They were to be Hellenistic cities, to evangelize the region with Greco-Roman culture and ideas that would inevitably choke out the Jewish culture, worldview, philosophy. Most of the Decapolis was located in the land to the east of the Sea of Galilee and running south down along the Jordan River. So to cross to the other side of the lake was to enter the land of the pagans, it was the journey to Mordor. No self-respecting Jew dared to go there. You see, the disciples had been inundated with tales of the Decapolis all their lives. They'd grown up hearing warnings about this place around campfires and at dinner tables from the rabbis at the synagogue. They had heard about how the Decapolis was populated with pagan temples consecrated to forbidden idols in which people practiced child sacrifice. They had heard how those who lived in the Decapolis engaged in sexual perversions and glorified violence and greed. Farmers in this region even raised and ate pigs, an unclean animal that many Palestinian Jews had never even seen with their own eyes. The Decapolis was considered to be an epicenter of demonic energy, a place where evil spirits roamed the countryside and possessed people. Every Jewish mother had warned her children to avoid entering the Decapolis region at all costs, so every Jewish adult feared it with their whole being. 
And yet Jesus said, let's go there. Why? Why would Jesus want to go there, and why would he lead the disciples to go there? You know, there's a secret about the Christian life that almost nobody tells you when you sign up for it. Jesus often leads his disciples to go to places they are afraid to go. It happens time and again in the Gospels. Jesus has a habit of leading people to go to uncomfortable places and uncertain places and terrifying places. And it's true of modern disciples, too. For you, that might be a hospital room or a witness stand or standing in front of somebody who absolutely ruined your life and trying to forgive them for something you once considered to be unforgivable, terrifying. Now, from one angle, this little habit of Jesus's might seem like masochism, but from another, it looks like good practice. Because, you know, in the end, life forces all of us to go to places that send shivers up our spines, whether we like it or not. You might find yourself standing in a funeral home of the only lover who ever loved you back. Maybe you'll be asked to clean out the closets in your now vacant childhood home. You know that place where you experience some of your worst traumas. Some of us, if we're lucky enough, will live long enough to be wheeled into a nursing home or transferred to an oncology ward or sent to a hospice center. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said in John 21, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Oh, you can run from your fears or wallpaper over your fears or pretend they don't exist but life will push you into all kinds of frightful places. And those of us who have experience facing our fears will be much better prepared when those days come. So facing your fears, as it turns out, is a good spiritual practice. So as Jesus boards this boat, there the disciples are, frozen in their tracks, not because they're in any imminent danger, but because they have been swept up in a fear-inducing story about what happens to people who cross to the other side of the sea. But eventually, eventually, they join Jesus in the boat, and that's when things get really interesting. The ship is sailing across the water, and suddenly Luke says, a windstorm came down on the lake. Now, this may sound like a curious description, but it makes sense if you know a little something about this topography of the region here. The Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee, is surrounded by ravine-marked hills that function like wind tunnels. They're, they pull in these strong winds across the, way, the, the lake and stir up storms. But that's not the only effect that the topography has. The sea also sits deep down in the valley nearly 700 feet below sea level. The surrounding hills, they tower up at over 2,000 feet. So when dramatic temperature drop-offs 
from the hilltops to the shoreline. Combined with pressure differentials, it can supercharge a storm. Now keep in mind that Jesus' disciples had grown up in this part of the world. Four of them were actually fishermen themselves, so they were very familiar with the storms of Galilee. Some of them had doubtlessly been swept up in a few tempests in their time. As with the Decapolis, they have heard story upon story about fishing vessels that have been capsized by storms like this, killing sailors, drowning fishermen just like them. So that day, as the clouds darken and begin to gather, the knots in their stomachs tighten. Then the thunder cracks and the rain begins to fall and their heartbeats quicken. Next, gale force winds begin to whip around them. Lightning flashes strobe overhead. The crashing waves become so fierce that they're in a full-on panic. In Mark's version of the story, he says, the story becomes so furious that the waves are breaking over the boat so that it is nearly swamped, and fear takes over. Not a sentiment of fear, a spirit of fear. And the disciples rushed to rouse Jesus, verse 24, and they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Many of us have been in storms like this, and we found ourselves pissed off at God, yelling at God, wondering why God seems to be sleeping through our storm. Master, Master, we are perishing. The disciples are so confident they're going to die, you wonder why they even bothered to wake Jesus up. Notice that they don't say, we might be perishing or we might perish, but we are perishing in their fear-induced hysteria. They seem to know exactly where all this is leading, death. You see, that's the thing about fear. Fear is a fortune teller. Fear is in the business of predicting the future. That's how fear works. That's what fear does. But there's an, another important thing to know about fear. Like most fortune tellers, fear is notoriously wrong. According to researchers at Penn State University, only about 8% of the things that people worry about come true. 8%. That means that if you are having a freak out right now, if you are catastrophizing about something, the future that you are afraid of is almost certain never to come true. Not in the way you foresee, not along the timeline you forecast, not with the results you predict. But why? Why are fear's predictions so notoriously undependable? Well, part of the problem is just the way that we human beings are wired and the way that we have evolved over time. We humans are a storytelling species. The human mind relates to and remembers stories more easily than facts and figures and reason because story combines information with emotion, which is a powerful combination. From the time we are born, we begin collecting and cataloging stories, logging a library composed of stories that we have heard or overheard in various forms and times. And these stories, this collection of stories that we have amassed, 
That is how we make meaning. When fear attempts to forecast the future, it is using the information that you have collected in your internal story bank in order to make a prediction. I feared coming out or being outed because of the stories that I had heard about what happens to people like me. The disciples feared crossing to the eastern shore because of the stories they'd heard about the Decapolis. And now the disciples think they're going to die because, well, they have heard lots of stories about people perishing in Galilee's famous storms. Humans are a storytelling species, but here's the catch. We are terribly unreliable narrators of our own lives. Just ask two people who have experienced the same thing to recount the same event and notice the differences in the stories they tell. Or ask someone to tell you a story about what happened to them and then ask them to retell that story to you 10 years later and notice the differences in the stories they tell. The way that we tell a story or remember it, it's not just a collection of raw facts. It is influenced by our perceptions, our beliefs, our interpretations, our imperfect memories. A story can shift simply based on what is emphasized or de-emphasized and which details we choose to overlay with meaning. Writer and therapist Lori Gottlieb has received thousands of emails from people telling her very personal stories because of the advice column she writes for The Atlantic called Dear Therapist. Whenever she receives an email, Lori doesn't draft a response right away. Instead, she files the stories in a folder on her computer desktop called The Problems of Living, giving her time to digest which details were included and which ones might be omitted before she drafts a reply. Godlieb says this, I have to be really careful when I respond to these letters because I know that every letter is just a story written by a specific author and that another version of this story also exists. It always does. If I've learned anything as a therapist, it's that, here it comes, we are all unreliable narrators of our own lives. Now, it's not that we purposefully set out to deceive or mislead ourselves or others. In fact, we're hardly conscious of what we're doing. Part of the problem is just good old-fashioned negativity bias, you know, that tendency that we all have to hold on to and recall negative details and painful experiences. Our brains actually register and store negative information more easily than positive or neutral information. Now, from an evolutionary perspective, this is a primitive survival instinct. It's meant to keep us alive, but in the modern world where we don't have to worry about being gobbled up by saber-toothed tigers, it often means that we live life with a distorted view of reality. So the stories we tell create the fears we feel. But since we're such unreliable storytellers, fear is interpreting potential threats through a distorted lens. And as a result, it usually overinflates the implications of a threat and fails to consider conflicting data. And suddenly you are living your life and making decisions based upon fears that are irrational or overblown, misleading or misguided. It's often been suggested that when you are experiencing fear, 
it's helpful to pause and ponder the fear beneath the fear. Think about that for a minute. What is it that you're afraid of? And then ask this question. What is it that you're really afraid of? In his book, How Not to Be Afraid, author Gareth Higgins says, when you do this, when you begin to examine the fear beneath the fear, well, you discover all sorts of things. Maybe I'm afraid of losing my reputation, or of cancer, or of violence, or of the collapse of civilization as we know it. Keep digging. You'll often find that underneath it all, what you are really afraid of, what you're really, really afraid of is that you don't have the strength to cope if any of those things happen. That's what you're really afraid of. But the truth is, Higgins says, and I'm quoting, people have coped. People have coped. They've even thrived after losing their reputation while suffering a terminal illness in the aftermath of violence and even when the world around them has collapsed. You see, the future forecasted by your fear will never take into account your strength, your resilience, your endurance, your ability to cope, which will often show up even in the most unfortunate situations and perilous storms. When you find yourself lost in fear, when you find yourself spiraling and catastrophizing, stop and look inward. Consider the fear beneath the fear. Take account of the stories you're telling about the trustability or goodness of other people, about the way the world works, about your own ability to cope if disaster comes. How can you begin to shift these stories to be more true and complete? You see, we humans are not very reliable storytellers, but we can be pretty good story editors. It turns out we're pretty capable of changing the narratives that we've been basing our lives on. We can rewrite what has been written. You know, in my life, I have learned one of the most powerful phrases, one of the most powerful phrases I can speak to myself, especially in times of great fear, is this one. And also, the thing you fear most it might happen. And when it does, there will be pain and loss, discomfort, uncertainty, and grief. And also, and also, you may find strength you didn't know you had. And also, unlikely helpers may show up at just the right moment. And also, New friends may arrive right when you need them. And also, you may find yourself drawn deeper into God's presence and grace and love even while the storm is raging all around you. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was calm. Not, not peace from the storm, peace for the storm. 
And he said to them, where is your faith? Oh, and they were afraid and they marveled and they said to one another, who, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. You see, unlike the disciples, Jesus doesn't seem panicked or startled. Instead, he gets up and as the Greek indicates, Jesus doesn't merely stand up. He rises to his full height to confront this storm. And the master's arms stretch out over the waters and the dark clouds peel back like the tin top of a sardine can. And there was calm. Powerful story. But what's the point? Well, in the first century, when pagans told stories of nature miracles, they almost always assigned them to gods in the Greek world, particularly to Zeus. Nature could only be controlled by divinity. And the same was actually true in the ancient Jewish imagination. The psalmist said, it is God that the seas obey. It is God who calms the waves and guides ships to safe harbor. In the story of Jonah, strikingly similar to this one, God stills the storm. So when they see Jesus do this, they know this, this is not someone simply performing a showy magic trick. Jesus is manifesting divine traits. And as the light bulbs above their heads illuminate, they tremble and they marvel. And suddenly they are less concerned about what is happening to them and more focused on who is happening with them. In times of great fear, your attention will be laser focused on the terrible, awful what. I've lost my job, that's what. My spouse has walked out, that's what. The cancer has come back, that's what. And let's be clear, these things matter. And these things are terrible. But fear will tell you these terrible things are the only things that matter. Luke, however, is reminding us that there is something else we need to pay attention to in the midst of our fear. There is someone else we need to pay attention to, that there is a critical piece of information that has gotten left out of our doomsday stories and pessimistic predictions. God is in the boat. God is in the storm. God was on the western shore that you have just left behind, and God is waiting on the eastern shores when you get there. As Father Richard Rohr has said, the presence of God is infinite everywhere, always and forever. You cannot not be in the presence of God. There is no other place to be. The only change is on our side. God is present, but we're not present to the presence. Fear will distract you from the who with the what. So being present to the presence is a practice. Oh, and this practice can look so many different ways. Sometimes it just looks like breathing. Really centering yourself, sitting and centering yourself on your breath which is your life. Sometimes it can look like remembering, like taking time to recall 
all the events in your life where you found strength to cope with the unexpected. Sometimes it can look like looking. It can just mean keeping your eyes open, keeping them peeled for the many, many miracles that will happen in the middle of the storm, miracles your fear never accounted for. Oh, miracles. Yes, I know that's a fraught word for good progressives and modern thinkers like us. Believing in miracles sounds a lot like magical thinking to enlightened ears. The moment I start talking about miracles, many of the people I know raise their hand to interrupt. They tell me they don't believe in miracles, that they've never experienced such things. But then they start talking about their lives, their actual lives, and it seems pretty clear to me that they have a lot of experience with miracles. Oh, they didn't have a name for these sorts of things that were happening to them. Or maybe they just called them by different names, names like coincidence or serendipity or good luck. My friend Eric was estranged from his father for years, but recently got a text with an apology out of the blue. A girlfriend of mine got a divorce, which she thought would be the end of her life, and then learned to do all sorts of things she didn't think she was capable of. A checkout clerk shows you uncommon kindness, a stranger pays you a compliment, a friend offers a hug in a moment when the thing you needed most was human touch. Some people don't like the word miracle, and I guess you can call these sorts of things anything you want. The most important thing is not how you name them, but that you notice them. That you attune your awareness to spot them and remember them and remind yourself that they exist especially in the middle of a storm. July 2012, weeks before my 30th birthday, storm clouds rolled in. The bottom fell out of the sky. My boat landed on the eastern shore that day, and I was thrust into this place, the place I just I feared more than anything. A former friend, someone I trusted with so many secrets, outed me publicly. In some ways, well, it was just as awful as I thought it would be. My family interactions felt awkward, strained, chilly. My friends, well, a lot of them just disappeared, never to be seen again. Some of my friends told me they felt weirded out, needed some time to process it. Some were angry with me, hurt that I didn't trust them enough to let them in. The worst ones took to social media to condemn me publicly, presumably to score points with all of their traditionalist friends online. In those days, I hated everything. I hated my life. I hated this body. I hated all the choices that I had ever made that put me in this situation to begin with. I hated the person who did this to me. Every night for weeks, I would fall into bed already emotionally exhausted and cry into my pillow for hours. I would cry tears of sadness and tears of rage and tears of confusion. And when I had no tears left, I would lay awake pondering the black hole of uncertainty that was my future. I wouldn't wish being outed on my worst enemy. I wouldn't wish it on the evilest person on planet Earth. The whole experience 
was the definition of trauma, splitting my life open like firewood and setting it ablaze. And also, many old friends offered me love and acceptance with no strings attached. And also, I had conversations with loved ones that were so overdue. And also, over time, my chest filled with a sense of new beginning, of new opportunity, of new possibility, of what my life could be. And one day, I realized I wasn't afraid anymore. I was free. I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't know where your life's boat is taking you, what it makes you feel like to think about being in that place. But I know that fear's forecast can't be trusted. I know that you're better, better able to cope with unwanted circumstances than you assume. I know you're stronger than you believe. I know you're more resilient than you think. And I know that in the midst of your terrible what, if you open your eyes, you will find a miracle-working who ever leave you or forsake you. Amen.